Hello, everyone. I am Russell Brooks, the Associate Director for Executive Education and Online Learning here at LSE. And it's my great pleasure to welcome you all to the first in a series of five webinars we're running this week on the theme of skills for a post-COVID-19 world, which we're offering as part of the LSE Festival. And next, across the next five days, we'll be exploring the professional skills that you need for a success in a post-COVID world drawing on LSE experts from across the social sciences. Each day, I'll be joined by members of LSE faculty who've developed our online certificate courses, our cutting edge portfolio of six to 10 week short courses designed for professionals who are looking to develop their skills to stand out from the crowd. Each day, we'll offer you insight into research trends in the fields of the faculty member, as well as practical ways to upskill your capabilities to meet the future challenges and opportunities which lie ahead for all of us. There will be time set aside in each session for you to pose questions too. Thanks to those of you who are already in the, commenting in the chat, letting us know where you are. Whilst we wait for everyone to arrive, we'd love to hear where in the world you're joining us from today. Hello to Rahul in Austria, Mo in the UK, Jessica in London. So I'm gonna start now and introduce our guests today, Barbara and Umar. So uh, Dr. Barbara Fasolo and Dr. Umar Taj, and they're gonna be talking to us on the topic of taking control of your decisions. COVID-19 has had a profound impact on many of our behaviors. It has had an impact on the personal and professional decisions we have made or perhaps not made. During this event, Barbara and Umar will share insights based on decision science research as well as practical training in order to help you make your next big decision. Barbara is an Associate Professor of Behavioral Science in the Department of Management and course convener of LSE's latest online certificate course, Decision-Making, Judgments, Biases and Nudges. She's also the head of the Behavioral Research Lab at LSE. Barbara is an expert in choice processes and choice architecture. Her work has appeared in peer-reviewed journals such as the Annual Review of Psychology, and proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, and her work has been covered in many media outlets, including the Harvard Business Review. Umar is a guest teacher at LSE and the deputy course convener of the online certificate course, Decision-Making, Judgments, Biases and Nudges. He delivers regular training and facilitation workshops and has worked with over 50 global institutions. His interests lie in helping public and private institutions apply the latest insights from behavioral science to improve decision-making. His current projects span the domains of human resources, technology, health, finance, security, politics, education, and international development. If you haven't been involved in one of Barbara or Umar's sessions before, then let, you, let me warn you at the start, they are normally very interactive and good fun. So today, there's gonna to be two places where we'll be asking you to contribute. If you want to, in the chat function, Barbara and Umar will invite you to participate in the session, so please use that. And then if you have questions that you'd like to ask them, which we'll pick up towards the end of the session, please put those into the Q&A box. So without further ado, I will hand over to Barbara to start the session. Thank you so much, Russell, and hi, everybody. Um, hi, hi there, Umar, too. So uh, I am absolutely thrilled to be here today with uh, Umar um, on day one of LSE Festival. This is, and I need to reveal the highlight of my life in the LSE community. 
because it combines all the things I love the most, science, research, arts, culture. And today is even more special because I get to um, I get to connect with all of you. I could see people from all over the world, Sao Paulo, Brazil, that's, that's the stuff that just shows up. I know, but I can't see you all. Um, so what we've prepared for you today is a little, well, let's say 30 minutes decision workout. So be prepared to interact. And as every decision workout, it's going to start with a warm up. So I'm going to uh, share the screen and you might start to grab a pen and a piece of paper because it might be handy, as well as be prepared to intervene um, in the chat. So uh, now you should be able to see a blank screen. Um, here we go. The way it's going to go is that I'm going to start uh, showing an image on this screen. It's going to be extremely fast. That's the whole purpose. So what you need to do is write in the chat what you see. I'm going to show you a person. What is she like? Ready? Okay, that's enough. So now I'd like to see what you've seen. Happy, blonde, upside down, friendly, fun. Okay. <laughs> Smiling. <laughs> Happy, okay, upside down, okay. young. Great. Great. So <laughs> it's already working. So it's smiley, happy, yeah, upside down. Okay, let's uh, let's look at her again, shall we? And I'm gonna give you a bit of more time. Here we go. There she is. Now, when you're all in the room, I like to see your uh, how you tackle this. Some of you just like, whoa, I didn't see that coming. But other people are a bit more skeptical, especially when they're taking my classes. They start to tilt their head and they kind of try to undo the first impression. But two things about this, this uh, activity is that, first of all, you don't see it coming the first time. You just can't see how utterly disgusted she is. But also, Umar and I do this over and over again. And still, when we see her for a split second, we see her smiling, first of all. So why am I doing this in a decision-making workshop? Uh, the message is this, that our decision mind where how we make decisions. It is not so dissimilar from our visual system. So we are designed to make mistakes such as these, to see the waitress smiling first. But we also have the ability, with the help of our people, with the help of technology, procedures, to see things right, to, to tilt it. Uh, now, we designed this workshop to be extremely hands-on and practical. Uh, we're not going to flood you with uh, lots of references and research, but if you want, really want, uh, I'll put them at the bottom of the slides and you'll be able to take a snapshot uh, and go forward. And the, the image I want to share here, we'll come back to it at the end, is that really we have these two systems in our mind. Um, and the first one is really how we act intuitively, instinctively. That's called system one. That's the one that gets us to see the waitress smiling first. We're bounded. And that um, that notion has been around for many, many decades, since the 50s. But we also have the ability to do better and to control biases and decisions. And that's how Omar and I have uh, decided to design this workout. We're going to start now um, with four different tips. Um, I'm going to give you two, and then I'll pass over to Omar for the other two. Um, okay, start. Um, as we said, it's going to be interactive. So please write down uh, the, a key decision that you're, you're facing, uh, perhaps you or your family or your team. It has to be something that is about to come and maybe made possible by uh, the pandemic. 
uh, write in the chat if you want to share so that we, we can um, have it in mind. If you don't want to, absolutely fine. Then grab a pen, piece of paper, write it down. It's helpful because then you can relate the tips immediately to that decision um, after one o'clock UK time. So I'll leave you about 20 seconds for doing that. Thank you. Okay, Umar, what do you think? Yeah. Proceed. All right. Uh, so I've, I've, I've just quickly gone through them. So, so one, what we are getting are a lot of job related, so career related moves. So move from one job to another, or is it study job, uh, few education, and then and and then a few which are location related, where to move next. Great. So should I take a job or not, or which job to take? Fantastic. Yeah, I was able to see a few coming through the chat. So uh, I also want to thank those who've already shared them on the Google form. We looked at those. So we really saw that the areas that you're working on right now about jobs, uh, some about education, uh, whether to take, uh, resume the studies that you might have postponed, come to London to, to do a, a program, stay or leave. Um, fantastic. So those are the types of decisions, the contents of the decision we are dealing with. But what I'm gonna do first is to see how they look like. What's the form they come to us? And I could already see from the, from the chat, you can do that yourself. Most of the decisions come to our mind and that's how we see also from the people we, we train in this shape. One single option. Most of the decisions are about should I leave my job? Should I move overseas? Should I accept the job offer or not? Now, that's, that's one way. Fewer decisions come with two options. Should I stay in the, my home country or should I leave, go overseas for better opportunity? Should I stay in my job or accept the job offer? Two options. We say in decision science, we we talk about this as, as, as being options. Very rarely, people have already a decision that, and, and, and they have to really uh, to think hard about what to do with three options in front of them. This is very rare. And what we'd like to share with you, tip number one is expand. Expand the number of options, expand the number of possibilities. We are going to... Um, help you draw an imaginary, maybe if you're gonna write it down, um, table of opportunities. And the first thing you gotta do is from that one single option we're thinking about, um, retire early, whatever it is that you shared, add more options, add an, a second option, um, add a third, and maybe even a fourth. And that pays out um, because, and this is where I'm going to show you some, some research here, that suggests that if you do that, if you add extra options, the chances of having a success long-term increases substantially. I'll share the results of two studies. One was conducted in a um, European country, in a mid-sized firm. Uh, they looked at the, the big decisions, strategic decisions made by a, um, an executive board, uh, pretty much always the same, uh, 83 of them. But what I'd like to focus on today are the um, 43 that were in a condition like we're in today, high complexity high uncertainty, risk, uh, lots of information, consequential, but also, and that's true of all of the decisions you've shared so far, you have the freedom to create 
those options. You're not forced in, in, in any particular way. It's not a choice from a mandate. You make them up. And these decisions were evaluated seven years after by the decision makers and those involved on a, on a number of criteria. For example, where it was adopted, stable, how much conflict it arose, financial power success, things like that. And the evaluation was poor decision, acceptable decision, satisfactory, or very good. And this is how the evaluation relates to the number of options. Pretty much if you have um, just two options, chances are the decisions are going to end up poor, uh, more than just good enough. But if you add an extra option, your chances to come up with a very good decision uh, or at least satisfactory increase substantially. This has been confirmed by a number of other studies. I'm going, just going to give you one more. Uh, they looked at uh, 358 different decisions made uh, in mid to large uh, size firms in the US and, and Canada, evaluation on similar criteria. Uh, again, time to implement, adoption, financial success. And here the evaluation was binary. So it was just fail or succeed. And uh, what they found was that, as, as shown earlier, most of the decisions had just one options, and unfortunately, um, most of them failed. But those that had more options, uh, two or more, were more successful. So of the 20% that had more options, most of them succeeded between 20, uh, between 50 to 70% success rate. So that's good. And uh, here's a message is to combat this single option bias or to cite one of my favorite rock bands, The Clash, um, you gotta combat this, this should I stay or should I go kind of dilemma in your head. Try to create more options. Uh, and that feels really good. And I'd like to thank Flora Contoli who, um, who shared with us how she felt immediately as she added a third option to the two that she had in mind in a recent training we gave. Um, in uh, translated in, uh, in English, um, this is what she said, adding a third option made me feel right away better physically, as if I took a mouthful of oxygen. Um, now, it is possible that there will be Italians, maybe even members of my family connected. This is a, what is possible now with, with the pandemic technology. So I'm going to say this also in Italian. Bear with me. Avevo due opzioni in mente. Aggiungere la terza opzione mi ha fatto sentire subito meglio fisicamente, come se avessi preso una boccata di ossigeno. And she said that um, wearing a face mask because she was close to where she, she had to work. So fantastic. So that's, that's the first tip for you. Expand the number of options. And I'm going to try and ask you to, to do that and note it down. Um, note down for that decision you had, how many options you thought about try to add more. Now, how to add more um, sometimes requires extra thinking. And that extra thinking is about what you care about, what we call objectives. Now, another interesting thing about objectives is that um, normally when we think about decisions, we think primarily about what to do, the options. We think about objectives if we do think about them afterwards. And normally we think too little uh, about objectives. So the second tip is in this imaginary table to expand down, expand down on the number of objectives you have. So add a second one, uh, perhaps a third one or um, a fourth one. 
So uh, I'm now going to share with you the results of some research uh, that shows why is it important to um, expand down, to write about it, and to think um, with a bit more time about objectives. This is research uh, conducted by Bond, Carson, and Kimi. <clears throat> it's a series of studies. Um, I'm going to. It's a series of studies that uh, was conducted um, in the US uh, with involvement of a real organization um, that had to decide to adopt. The um, decisions were about business, as I said, and about education and about career. Uh, some of the studies were involved in first year MBA students who uh, at the end of the first year had to decide which grad program to sign up to and which job placements, basically like an internship that they had to do in the summer. It's hugely consequential, both for the success of the whole program, as well as for the whole, uh, their career clearly. And that's what I'll be focusing on, that, that field study. So if you're a participant in this study, what you do is um, in the first stage, you'd, have, you'd be asked to think about this decision that you had and you can try and do this for your decision and write down on a piece of paper your objectives. And you'd be given it in as much time as you want for that. In fact, it was done as a field study, not a lab study, so that people could really take any time they wanted whenever they felt more inspired. And they did that. When they submitted these objectives back to their researchers, the researchers sent to them a master list, a list of all of the objectives that could be relevant to the decision. There were 29 in the context of the decision of an internship. Things like, um, I would like to um, have an internship that is with a company whose culture I identify with, uh, that is enjoyable to do, that compensates me well, uh, that is in a specific location. Location is very important uh, through your decisions and so on and so on. Um, so, for example, uh, a participant could have listed two objectives in step one. In step two, um, they could have checked, say, five objectives, objectives three, four, six, seven, eight from the master list. And then what the researchers do did uh, was to ask to merge the two steps. Okay, so uh, we take the two objectives from the first list to the five objectives that were checked. And that creates a, um, a single list. And the most important, most exciting bit is the following step, which is when people were asked, which are your most important objectives? And to rank the ones uh, that were top three. And here's what they found out. Uh, so for instance, in this example here, uh, the ones that were ranked top was objective B uh, that was in the original list and objective six and eight, they were in the master list. In other words, what they thought was really the most important thing was in most cases not in the first list that people wrote down. So the message we want to pass on to you is that it's really, really important not to stop at the first things that come to mind, the first objectives that come to mind. Um, what's even more interesting is that people tend normally, even with lots of time, to think about half of what really matters. In the research that I shared, uh, on average, um, people came up with six objectives from the list, from a checklist, but recognized as relevant almost three times as much. 
Um, and as, as I told you already, the things that they uh, thought about first were not necessarily the most important. Uh, almost 80% of the people missed at least one important objective and over a third missed all three. So think about it, how this is really us seeing the uh, waitress smiling first, right? We think about things that might really be important, but not crucially important. Uh, we call this, this is why it's called, unquote, the missed objective bias. So this tendency to think about too few objectives and omit those that matter a lot. And that requires a bit of extra thinking. Um, how you can expand down the list of objectives? Uh, well, what they did in the study was to use a checklist. This checklist wasn't you know, pulled off somewhere. It was aggregating the objectives that were important to other people. So that's what we can do as a community, as a community of decision makers. That's what we practice even in our training. Um, and the second one, uh, if you don't have a checklist, you can't create it, um, is to prompt for categories of objectives. So for instance, thinking about short-term objectives versus long-term objectives, or um, given you have so many about careers, uh, we wanted to share prompts for career decisions such as think of lifestyle, risk, reward, that would expand. And that's thanks to some uh, research with real managers uh, conducted by Stuart Woolers. Uh, so that's the second tip, expand down. Now um, I'd like to hand over to Umar um, to share with us the next two tips. Brilliant, thanks, thanks a lot. Um, so, so as you can see, uh, when we were creating this, uh, Barbara and I, we, we got together and our thing was, well, I mean, decision making, it's, it's, it's such, a, such a deep field and then there's so much. What, what could be the things that we can just tell you very quickly um, that, that you can try and just do right away after this to, to, and, and to have a visual in your head to go ahead with it. So first step, expand right, second step, expand down. Um, and so what, what you have is you can already sense what we are suggesting to you is to, to try and put stuff down on a piece of paper, right? So Barbara, if you go to the next slide, uh, our third tip um, to you uh, is zooming in. So the thing is, so imagine if you have option one, two, three. So, so you are saying, okay, so should I stay with this job or take up an offer here or take up an offer here? Let's imagine or take up fourth offer kind of a thing. Or if I wanna move out, should I go to here? you know, these four different places. So you have them on the top, on the left are the things that you care about. And then comes the point where you're saying, well, something should be filled in, right? Uh, in order for you to try and evaluate. Uh, and, and this is another really important step when you're making a decision, which is to try and pay attention to how are you seeking the information to fill in, let's say a scorecard like this. right? Uh, and I want to illustrate uh, through a quick exercise uh, why it is important for us as decision makers to pay attention to how we are seeking information, where we are seeking information from. So I want to play a little game with you. Uh, and, and here's the game. Uh, I have chosen a rule. It's a mathematical rule in my head. And based on that rule, I generate a sequence of three numbers. Okay. Uh, your job, your ultimate job is to try and guess what is the rule that I am using. Right. Now, I'm not just going to let you say what the rule is. Rather, what I will show you is three numbers that do obey my rule. And then I will give you a chance to write in the chat another set of uh, another sequence of three numbers 
and I can tell you whether that sequence obeys my rule or not. And that's the way for you to try and infer what my rule is, all right? So I'm gonna start now and here, 10, 20, 40, it obeys the rule that I use in my head to generate a sequence of three numbers. And Barbara, if you go to next slide, I want you to write down in chat a sequence of three numbers. Yes, that, and I'll tell you five, 10, 20 obeys the rule, one, two, four obeys the rule, 81, 63, 20 obeys the rule, uh, 15, 30, 60 obeys the rule. Ah, uh, okay, okay. <laughs> that's a lot. Uh, let's let let me pick one, and I will tell you one which does not obey my rule. Uh, okay, or I'll tell you one, two, three obeys my rule. Okay. Uh, someone, let me look at one, and I'll tell you why this is really interesting. Uh, let me pick one. Uh, and ABE doesn't, doesn't obey my rule. It's a sequence of numbers only. Uh, 11, 24, 35 also obeys my rule. Okay. Uh, we have 17, 9, and 1. That does not obey my rule. Okay. Have a think. Have a look at the chat and see what were the first uh suggestions that you put in to try and inform my rule and there were people who just right away said double right and this is something really important to understand really simple exercise somebody said 1050 1050 does not obey my rule right and here's the thing what's my rule my rule is any order of increasing numbers right but here's the interesting point the interesting point is when I first show you 10, 20, 40, for most of the people when we do, we have done this, thousands of people now. What, as soon as they see 10, 20, 40, they think that my rule is doubling. So the first set of numbers that they ask me, the sequence that they ask me, are all the ones that are doubling, right? And if someone says 5, 10, 20, I say, yes, it obeys my rule, right? Somebody is saying 30, 60, 120, I say, yes, it obeys my rule. And every time I say yes, you become more and more confident that my rule is doubling. Whereas all throughout this, it was simply any sequence of increasing number. If you said minus 101, I still would have said. So the, the interesting point here, and this is a lot of work has gone into it, but we see this very, very prevalent in, in among decision makers. Barbara, if you go on to the next slide, is this concept of confirmation bias exactly. Uh, so, Subhra, uh, Dash, you, you, you got that exactly there, which is confirmation bias. It's our tendency to search for, to interpret, to favor, to recall information that confirms our existing beliefs and hypotheses, right? So if I go back to the same visual again, Barbara, next slide that I started with, imagine you have your set of options, you have things that you care about. Um, it's really important to pay attention to where are you seeking information from? What are you filling these empty cells with, right? Uh, and and if, if you are falling prey to confirmation bias, and there are many other cognitive biases uh, similar to this, then, then all of your data will be in, in this color, for example. But if you try and go through debiasing exercise, right? try and train yourself in spotting biases, then this is what reality might look like. Right? 
uh, which which does not have uh, you know bias inherent in the judgments that you are making. So tip number three. So tip number one was expand right. Tip number two is expand down. Tip number three is zoom in. Pay attention to where you are seeking information from to fill these empty cells of the scorecard. Moving on to the next tip now, which is zoom out. Right. And again, this is really, really important. Barbara and I, we do a lot of work with, uh, you know, with decision makers who are making uh, strategic decisions. And again, one of the things that we see again and again is more often than not, the decision maker is going through this all by herself or himself. Right. And our tip, our fourth tip for you is pay attention. Don't do this alone. Right. So Barbara, if you click next again, have someone with you. Right. Who are you doing this exercise with? Have someone with you uh, who is there assisting you through the process of making an important decision. Why is this important? Uh, I'm going to show you an exercise uh, that Barbara and I run. We have we run this with, with, with hundreds of senior execs, um, you know, execs who come to LSE to take our courses. I'm going to show you what we do in the exercise. And again, I'm going to ask you to guess something. So here's, here's what we do. We split people. In, in two groups. They don't know that they are in these two groups, but we do that. And to group A, uh, what we do is uh, we tell them that here's a list of 14 biases, and we want you to rate on a scale of one to seven to what extent you think that blank, so this has to be filled out, that blank is likely to exhibit biases described below. That's what we ask, right? And to group B, we ask the same thing, but we change something in that blank. What's in black, we change something in group B. And, but the rest of it is exactly the same. So we ask group B on a scale of one to seven, indicate to what extent you think this person, group of people, whoever it is, are likely to exhibit biases described below. Okay? And something really interesting happens. When we take the average of the responses of people in group A, we get, sorry if you just click, we get on a score of 5.6. So people on a scale of one to seven, they give a score of 5.6 to how likely that group that is in black at the moment uh, is likely to exhibit a bias. Whereas people in group B, their score is much less. I want you to guess what is it that we showed to group A and what is it that we showed to group B? Just put it in the chat. Ooh, Mikhail, picture words, no. So there's one person. Oh, it goes down so quickly. Students, teachers, no, not students, teachers. So if I am pronouncing this correct, Mikhail Nomakovsky has something. Peers versus self, similar Philip Porto. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So some of you, some of you, very few of you have got this right. So here's here's the review. So to group A, we ask them, how likely do you think, Barbara, if you click next, how likely do you think that, uh, Barbara, do you want to click next? How likely do you think that an average person from your country is likely to exhibit the biases? And to group B, we ask them how likely they think they are to exhibit the bias. And this happens again and again. We see the same result again and again. We all think that others are susceptible to biases, but not us. 
And this makes it even more important for us to have what we like to call decision buddies, to have someone with you who is there to play uh, this kind of a supporting role and to monitor uh, in case you fall prey to, to a bias, right? Uh, this, is, this is called a bias blind spot. It's, it's our tendency to underestimate how susceptible we are to biases compared to others. We, this, this just happens. It's just naturally how, how our brain is. We think, yes, others are going to fall prey to it, but not us, uh, but we all do, right? So our tip four, when we're saying zoom out, is to try and have someone with you who takes you through a decision process. I do understand it's not always easy to, to find someone, um, but um, it is quite important. So do try and make an effort uh, to try and find, to have a decision buddy, right? Um, so these are the four tips. Uh, so I'll briefly click next. So just to sum up uh, what we are telling you right away that you can do, there's a lot of stuff that can happen. Uh, like, you know, <laughs> there's quite a lot that we can share with you, but given this time that we have four very simple tips, expand right, tip number one. So increase the number of options. Always try and think, are there more alternatives? That's one. Tip number two is expand down. Try and think of more objectives, right? Ask other people what their objectives might be. Increase that list, right? Because the first things that come to your mind might not be the most important. So tip number two, expand down. Tip number three, zoom in. Pay attention to how you're seeking information to fill the scorecard. And tip number four is to zoom out, right? Think about who you're doing this exercise with. Do you have a, do you have a support? Do you have a decision buddy to do this with? Uh, with this, uh, I'm going to stop. Uh, uh, Barbara, back to you to just uh, share final piece of advice. What? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. So basically, we want to say that even if our decision mind where is designed to get us to see the waitress body first, there is still lots we can do. And there is definitely enough science uh, and enough knowledge to give us back the control for some uh, of, those, of those biases. Our intuition isn't always incredibly flawed. Uh, there are some predictable uh, blind spots that we now know of and we can do better uh, now that we know. And it's with that that we can, we think, uh, take greater control of the decisions that we face and the opportunities we have and help others make better decisions because most of these decisions are not just ours, they're about our families, our teams, our organizations. Um, outside of a decision, you know, everything else just happens as a decision analyst, Ralph Keeney always says. So we enjoyed this massively. I think um, I'm, I'm now ready to hand over and to, to Russell for the final Q&A. Thank you for the participation, guys in so many chats. Yeah, thanks a lot. <laughs> thanks, Barbara. Thanks, Umar. Brilliant. So um, thanks very much to those of you who've already sent questions through. We've actually just had three or four come through almost um, together at the, at the same time. So let's, let's start there. Um, decision buddies, um, do you have any advice on how you go about choosing, selecting a, a decision buddy, um, and, and particularly around how to make sort of think perhaps around biases you might be adding sort of reinforcing biases when you choose a decision buddy so umar i can see you're nodding i don't know if you want to start with that one no i, I was nodding to a really really good this is a really good question <laughs> <laughs> that's what i was nodding to I, I do have some i i do have some responses to share but but barbara uh 
Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The thing is that when we want to um, we want to ask advice to somebody or we want to share uh, the decision with somebody, it's only natural that we tend to share with people that would agree with us, right? We would have our back, our friends and family. And instead, what we really do, for instance, in our courses is that we create these teams uh, of, of, of decision buddies. And we, we randomly assign who's going to be a decision buddy at first because the most important thing is diversity diversity of views. So the rule would be the people we would normally not want to invite out to a party because they're so different from you, um, from a different background, different language, uh, different experience. That would be my cue. Pick somebody you wouldn't expect ever to have to share a decision with. It's not about going on the next holiday trip together. It's about broadening your blind spots. Umar, to you. Yeah. Uh I think just adding on to that, so so it's not someone who is very, very close to you, not someone who's really far away from you. I think what's important is, um, and, and, and I think that's part of the question, which is knowledge of, of you know, some of the biases that might be there as well, right? Uh, now, you know, you, you, I'm, I'm sure you could already feel we are really passionate about, about big decision making. Um, and, and one important thing is for us, all of us to try and, and train ourselves. Like we never think about it. Like, you know, we have made lots of decisions, never thought about training. So, so what you need to educate yourself or, or whoever your decision buddy is a li- little bit of that, that insight into what, what biases might be there. And there is some research that is there saying these are some common biases, for instance, some easy reads that are there. And you, I don't know whether you had any thoughts on perhaps a, sort of the situation we're in now as perhaps organisations and people are thinking about how we'll re- either return back to sort of very collaborative workplaces or how people will work as remote workers. Is there anything there that you think is likely to have an impact for how decisions are made or that people, that you're impressed people are thinking about or would urge people to think about more to enable them to make good decisions? You, uh, so do you, do you, are you referring, I'm asking you a question about your question, uh, <laughs> Russell. So um, what is a decision that people are making with regard so, to so when you're making, when you're thinking about decision buddies, so like we've, we, we've had lots of collab- workplaces very much designed to work collaboratively with other people to, it's very easy to quickly find very quickly a decision buddy or bring together a group of decision buddies and, and to have access to, a, I guess, a diet a more diverse group of, 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 sort of colleagues and friends than perhaps when you're the current sort of remote situation, when you're lots of people within their homes. Um, and, and also thinking more back as we decide the pros and cons about how much we want to be back in an office or working remotely, just wh- whether you worry for decision making, the quality of good decision making based on that, or if you, you, you think that perhaps the virtual is better. I can I can start and then Umar you can you can chip in. I, I just think that the more the better. The more you have diverse um, the opportunity to to ask and collaborate with people that are very diverse uh, and different from you and as many as possible. Um, considering that as many as possible, it's never going to be hundreds. It's it's already enough if there are five uh, different people. It, it is better. And remote has allowed us to connect to people that we normally cannot have at the LSE. I've never, I've never had an LSE festival event with so many people signed up. 
right? Yeah. So I think that's an amazing advantage. Um, I mean, I see for the course we're, we're now launching, right? People are able to body up across across the world. And that does, it is bound to help uh, the ability to make uh, better decisions, I think. Um, so the question you're asking also about how to decide how to work going forward. Um, yeah. You know, it's not gonna, we're gonna apply the expand option. It's not gonna be, we're gonna be thinking, most of us think about, should I go back to how it was before? Or should I, you know, should I stay in this? There are gonna be far nuanced uh, options. And I think we should all explore at least three, four other ways. And in the recent training we've had, you know, people are thinking about, oh, that's right. I should probably think about who else is going to work in the same days as me. And on those days we go in and then we go out. And so there's lots of options. So it goes back to the objectives you're trying to achieve. And it might be different post-COVID immediately, uh, a year from now and so on. Um, but I would say I'd be very happy to sit down and, and work uh, with the four <laughs> tips on that decision. Yeah. <laughs> um, Umar, anything to add? Uh, so um, I've recently been doing some work on future on on future of work, um, and one of the common themes that I'm thinking that organizations, uh, you know, like senior managers are making is exactly this, which is thinking of this as a single option decision. You know, should we go back to how it was or not? Uh, and in reality, this is an opportunity for us to try and create new alternatives. Because, uh, because you, you, in in some sense, think of it as a blank canvas, and you can create. Uh, so, I think just phasing it as should we go back or not, I think that's a mistake that we are making. There are more alternatives present, and I think that's what we should try and and think about. Fresh start, we can redesign. I think that's what. Tip, tip one in action there. So, um, I want to to move on to master list. So, Becky Burden and James Breen have both put questions in the Q and A, which have been upvoted. So, Becky's was how would we create our own master list and then james has said uh read the master list how would you go about sourcing or building an impartial and relevant list of objectives for step two yeah that's a that's a big one so in the research that i shared um this was a real career placement decision and the master list that was given to the participants wasn't created uh by the experimenters for the sake of it it was actually an aggregation of objectives that had been already um, shared by previous students. So we are big uh, fans of writing stuff down. We've already asked you to do that. We're pretty serious about it. Uh, so writing down the objectives you have this time um, and asking other people to share that. So the, the aggregation of, of the past of similar people or experts. So if this is a situation where it is possible to come up with the objectives that experts share. Uh, that's another one. Um, obviously, when it's an easy choice of, you know, think about how you can make a consumer product choice. Sometimes you go to consumer reports tables or um, tab some tables are already there. Not that they're prescriptive telling you what to do, but they might give you idea, right? Ideas about what would be your list. So for big strategic decisions, I do, I do create list I do have a journal and I do create and I I, I realize that uh, the more I think about it the deeper I go and maybe I keep four or five that are really important uh, when it comes to jobs for instance. Umar. Mm. Uh, follow so this is something we are working on do do follow our work uh, in which uh, the aim is exactly the thing if you if you scroll up the chart and you see the decisions that people are making you will realize that so many of us 
are making very similar decision. Uh, and, and the work that we are doing on is, is thinking about introducing machine learning uh, into this to try and see other people similar to you, what did they come up with? Uh, and there's really an element of crowdsourcing in this. Uh, and, and, and to be honest, after, so, after some time, uh, that's it, the list doesn't increase. More or less, it is, it's the same thing. Um, so one, do, do, do follow our work because that's exactly what we are working on, which is helping people uh, you know, come up with this crowdsource uh, objectives. Brilliant, thank you. So um, Daniel Payne has, has also asked a popular question, which um, about you perhaps making life harder for us to make good decisions. So his question is, can increasing the number of options that are available sometimes make it more difficult to enact a decision? Uh, what's your, your response to that, Barbara? Yeah, yeah. So um, in, the, in the consumer domain, where we, you know, the options are there in the market, uh, there is, in fact, the um, opposite result, that there's choice overload, right? This thing that you tend to feel paralyzed and you feel uh, like you, can, you prefer to procrastinate and never do the thing because there's just so much stuff out there. Um, both coexist in our brain. So the, the thing is this, uh, there's an inverted U shape that uh, if you, you know one option is not enough, a few is optimal, but uh, above the sweet spot, um, uh, the too many options, just our brain cannot cope. We cannot really, um, we cannot choose optimally and we don't feel confident in all of that. So I would say, that's why we had up to four. Uh, the research I shared with you showed a, uh, an additional success from two to three, quite substantial, three to four also. But after that, really, um, don't worry too much. Um, so another very popular topic uh, on the Q&A has been the role of intuition or gut in, in decision making. And um, yeah, what's, what's, what's your thinking about, about, about how much value people should put on their gut and intuition and how does that sort of sit alongside what you've been talking about today? Yeah, so I, um, I'm a big fan of intuition, of trained intuition. So what we need to get out of is this idea that we intuitively can do things if we haven't been thinking about it a lot. Um, so um, I know some of you have taken, uh, have commented on the word experts. So there's work by Gary Klein, for instance, who's a scholar in the field of naturalistic decision-making. What he studies are firefighters. Um, you know, pilots, people have to make very fast decisions, right, intuitively, because they can't check, I mean, of course, they check things, but they have to be really, very fast. And why is it that they do that, he claims, is because of their intuition. Um, now, why are they able to make very good intuitive decisions? Because in the case of firefighters, the way that a fire operates on Earth, whether it's here in London, or Sao Paulo, wherever you are, it's gonna operate in the same, in the same fashion. We, we, we talk about, in that case, objectives are called cues. The cues are reliably predicting what you're trying to figure out, which is the severity of the, um, of the fire, whether you should eva evacuate, right, an area. Now, unfortunately, the decision about jobs and changing my life and going overseas in some remote place isn't, isn't like predicting whether I should evaluate this area, right? So in other words, the cues are less valid. And when the cues are less valid, 
like in this case of strategic decisions, you gotta do a bit more thinking. Or you get that's where the um, expert master lists can shorten the time because it can figure out quickly what are the cues that are really important. So one scenario, especially for those things that you've never done, like for some of you who have not been parents before, it's very hard to figure out what really matters when you're a parent. And that's where having the master list before. And if you go intuitively, like, oh, I'm sure I'm going to be doing this, but it's not really going to work out um, because that intuition works in that particular mode. It's another bias called projection bias. <laughs> it kind of is in the way of making good intuitive decisions. So um, basically, absolutely, there's hope. Train it. Um, and yeah, and it's not that every decision is pathetic, right? We're talking about the big strategic, like changing decisions. Yeah. Omar, anything to add? Um, I, th I think one, one thing, uh, so yes, you can become, like you can develop expertise in, in making decisions. Uh, don't think that just because you have been making big decisions, you have been making a lot of big decisions, just by that, you have developed expertise. So don't that that's something we all fall prey to. Uh, what's important is to seek feedback. So you can develop this intuition. Important is that you seek feedback post decision to see where you were right and where you were wrong and then recalibrate. And then yes, uh, you know, you can you can rely on your, your intuition. Brilliant. Thanks very much. So hopefully we've got time for, for two more quick ones. Uh, currently the most popular question I've got is, do you have any good examples for de-biasing exercises? Well, what you've just done, guys, right? So if you think about this de-biasing the uh, omitted objective bias, is this of listing? Um, even just if you don't have a master list, uh, prompt for categories. So this prompting for categories is de-biasing, um, you know, that bias. For um, confirmation bias, for instance, is really always try to consider the opposite. In other words, it's what comes to you naturally. Oh, I kind of want to move to um, Sao Paulo just because I saw someone there from Sao Paulo. Um, part of my ancestry was from there, so um, that they, they picked my my uh, you know my attention. Um, and I want to move there. Uh, I've already decided that's where I want to go. So what we want to do is figuring out perhaps. Um, the experience of people who moved there and were not, we did not find what you're thinking to find. So try to find for disconfirming information. Um, or I gotta move out because there's no way that, you know, in the UK post Brexit, I'll ever be happy as an Italian. Try to think instead of situations that actually it is possible to be happy here. Um, so disconfirming also um, about the option that I, I'm feeling less warm about. And ask people, uh, to find information. A classical Google search about Googling the opposite of what you want to Google. <laughs> That's yeah. another debiasing technique. Yeah. yeah. Umar? So I can I can share I can share my one, um, which which is so one of one of the other biases that come in is us being quite overconfident in you know in 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 the, the the decisions we are making or the judgments that we are making. Uh, and one really popular biasing technique uh, it's called pre-mortem uh, the idea being that you try and imagine that you are now in the future uh, and um, you know what you decided didn't go the way uh, you know it hasn't gone the way that uh, that you were expecting and you list down what went wrong 
Um, and this, yes, when when people do this, this is, uh, you know, it, it makes you feel a little sad, but you don't stop there. So this is just a five minute exercise that you do at the start of any, any big decision or any planning. Uh, the next step is that you try and then create your contingency plans for it. Um, we've had huge success when, when we teach about this, uh, you know, feedback from, from execs, from students who, who, you know, write to us after saying how useful this was. And then there are some instances where you are underconfident, right? Where, where you, you're just like, nah, I don't think I can do this. And in that, a really good debiasing technique, uh, it's called promotum which is just the opposite of this, right? So imagine you're in the future and everything worked really, but now you list down, well, what all went great. Um, and, and, and now what we suggest is both of these two, do both of them, right? Do a pre-mortem, do a pro-mortem. Uh, so that, do read up, uh, pre-mortem, I'll just type it here for people as well. Uh, search it up um, and one, one definite uh, one for you to, to do, to apply it. Brilliant. Thanks. And in fact, actually, that's a great link to perhaps my last question. Just a very quick one from Moritz. Is, for, for people who are interested, are there any books? Is there a book either of you would recommend for, for someone to go and read if they want to think about these issues further? Barbara? Yeah, so from um, to, to understand how the mind works, um, it's, not a, it's not an easy book, but Thinking Fast and Slow, uh, the book that we had uh, on one of the first slides is a good one by Daniel Kahneman who's a big um, you know, scholar and who, who instant, you know, triggered the whole uh, revolution of behavioral science across several um, fields. So Daniel Kahneman, Thinking Fast and Slow. Uh, then there are applications um, to help uh, better decision, that's the book Nudge, uh, for instance, um, by Taylor and Sanstein. Uh, that's another one. Thanks, Barbara. Thank you. Brilliant. Umar, did you want to add a, a book? Uh, I think more on the practical side. So HBR has, um, you know, a, a short compilation. It's called On Making Smart Decisions. Um, I think that's a short compilation if you want to do a quick read. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much to both of you for your time today. What a great start that's been to our week of sessions here. Um, as part of the um, LSE Festival. Um, I hope everyone who joined us found it insightful. And I also really hope um, that you've enjoyed the opportunity to hear from Barbara and Umar as much as I have, and also to thank you for your questions. Uh, for those of you who are interested in finding out more about um, what you've heard Barbara and Umar talk about, you can find out more about our new online certificate course. I mentioned it at the start, Decision-Making, Judgments, Biases and Nudges which explores the science behind decision-making and helps improve your ability to make decisions with a bias-proof process, as well as our entire portfolio of online certificate courses via the link on the slide now. If you've enjoyed this session and want to watch any of it again or recommend it to a friend, it will be available on the Festival Hub and on YouTube, and will also be on the LSE player as soon as we can get it there. Our next event in this series will take place tomorrow at the same time, where we'll be looking at how to develop your presence and influence with uh, Professor Constant Locke. You can register to join the event on the LSE Festival page now. I very much hope to see you again then, but for now, thanks very much and goodbye.